You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning again. We, uh, we're going to continue and we're getting close to the end now of our series in 1 John. So if you have Bibles, you can make your way to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 6 through 12 this morning. Testimony uh, is a really powerful thing. The testimony of a, of a witness during a trial has been an integral part of our justice system for centuries. And even in, in recent years, in recent decades, when the media covers uh, a famous uh, trial or case, they're often talking about key star witnesses or key witnesses, someone that's going to give testimony that's going to change the outcome of a, of a trial. The testimony of a Christian... Uh, how God has worked in his or her life makes what could otherwise feel like these lofty doctrinal and theological concepts concrete and practical. And it's been a real joy to get to hear a number of those kinds of testimonies uh, from both adults and children this morning. But as powerful as testimony is, how can we know it's reliable? Is, Is it just someone's subjective story Or is it actually rooted in something deeper? Is it actually rooted in objective truth? We live in a cultural moment where a lot of people don't even care about that question. Uh, All that matters to many people in our culture is my story, my experience. All that matters to many people is the subjective. Well, in today's text, the Apostle John writes about what he calls the testimony. And as we'll read, what he means by that is the person and work of Jesus and the life that is found in him. And what we'll find is that though certainly this does include internal subjective experience, it is rooted in objective historical events. And so in this moment that John's writing in, which is not altogether unlike ours, where people were being drawn away from following Jesus and often being drawn away by those that were overemphasizing the subjective and who were picking the facts that they would believe about Jesus. Okay, we'll take that one, but we won't take that one. John is writing here to witness to the whole truth about Jesus. He is writing so that his initial readers and so that you and I may know the testimony. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into our text. God, our Father, who caused all of Scripture to be written as a testimony to yourself and a testimony to your work in this world, grant now that as we hear your word, that we would learn and mark and inwardly digest your truth embracing and ever holding fast to the blessed hope of eternal life, life that you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 5, and I'll pick it up there in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the son. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is God's word. So John here in this text highlights three things about the testimony. And we'll spend the rest of the time we have this morning looking a little bit at each of those things. There's the first testimony. There's further testimony. And third, final testimony. So first, let's talk about the first testimony. Uh, And if you've been with us during this series, you might remember that John is writing this letter, among other reasons, to combat a group of opponents who once were part of the church, but who have since left. And these opponents claimed as they left that they were being guided by the Holy Spirit, or at least being guided by some spiritual power, and that that subjective experience meant that they were in the right. It was okay for them to, to leave. And so John here begins this portion of his letter not with the subjective, but with the objective. And he does that by both establishing some common ground about something he and these opponents agree on and then correcting something about which they disagree. So the thing that they agree on is that Jesus Christ came by the water. Came by the water. That's almost certainly a reference to Jesus' baptism. And in all four of the gospel accounts, the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, there's a reference to Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And in those accounts, as Jesus came up from the water, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and the people who were gathered there on the banks of the Jordan heard the audible voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus' baptism was his commissioning for his three years of, of ministry. As he began that ministry, he was, he was set apart. He was empowered for this work that he came into the world to do. And in that moment, God the Father bore witness. God the Father gave his own testimony that this indeed is my son. This indeed is the one that I am pleased with. This is the one you should listen to. So about this, John and his opponents have a lot of agreement. They've got a lot of agreement about this. The, the primary false teaching that John is confronting in this letter is a view that separates the humanity from the divinity of Jesus rather than holding those two things together as as we're meant to. The opponents believe that Jesus was an ordinary human man who at his baptism received the divine spirit, but then that just before he died, just before he went to the cross, that divine spirit left him and he was then again only a human man when he died. So in a sense, both John and his opponents all believe that Jesus came By the water. They all acknowledge the significance of his baptism, at least something of it. What they disagree about, what these opponents dispute, is that Jesus also came by the blood, which is a reference to Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross. And John is saying here that the same Jesus, the same fully divine, fully human God man who came by the water was the very same one who died on the cross. He's saying that Jesus' divinity didn't start and then stop at these different moments of his life. The one who came by the water is the same one who came by the blood. John continues, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who testifies to these things. So notice that the Spirit is testifying via 
objective, historical, observable events like Jesus' baptism and Jesus' crucifixion. The Holy Spirit does do experiential, subjective, personal work in us. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But the Holy Spirit is also the one that points us to external evidence, points us to things that happened in flesh and blood and things that happened in real space and time. It's, it's not unlike what the Apostle Paul says to King Agrippa when he's on trial before him in Acts 26. And he says, none of this was done in a corner. These were things that happened in real time and space. They were observed by many. So first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is the spirit, as John says here, of the truth. It's not the spirit of my truth or your truth. It's the spirit of the truth. And our God is not a God of confusion and is not a God of contradiction. The spirit of the truth testifies along with the water and the blood. As John writes, these three agree. So when it, John goes on to argue, make this argument, that when it, when it comes to human courts, when it comes to our human courts, our justice systems, if two witnesses corroborate something, we're likely to accept that testimony as valid. And that's not only true of our civilization, that's been true of a lot of human civilization for many centuries. Both Jewish and Roman law in the first centuries required more than one witness to attest to the truth of something. And John is saying here, well, we don't just have two witnesses, we have three, the spirit and the water and the blood. And moreover, all of it is the testimony of God himself. It was, it was his voice that was speaking over Jesus at his baptism. It was his hand that was tearing the curtain of the temple in two from top to bottom at his crucifixion. So in source, in significance, God's testimony is greater than man's testimony. And so if we accept human testimony, John says, how much more should we accept God's? Now, what do we learn from this? We learn that when it comes to evidence about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, our human problem is not ignorance, it's suppression. Our human problem is not ignorance of the truth, it's suppression of the truth. It's not that these things happened so long ago that, man, so much time has passed, we're kind of unable to know truth. It's actually that we are unwilling to accept it. When it comes to the central claim of Scripture that that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, who came into the world to live and die and rise again for the salvation of all who would believe, when it comes to that claim, John gets really blunt about things, if there's disagreement and dispute, then either God's lying or you're lying. Someone's lying, and it's either God or you. So neutrality about this, actually, at the end of the day, is not neutral. Neutrality is actually calling God a liar. Indecision about this, at the end of the day, is actually not indecision. It's deciding to reject the testimony that God himself has borne. And I'm not saying to you this morning that this is easy. I'm not pretending this morning that there aren't some hard questions that we have to wrestle with. What I am saying this morning is similar to what John Stott wrote years ago, where he said, unbelief is not so much a misfortune to be pitied as it is a sin to be deplored. And he goes on to say, its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. So we we sometimes like to couch unbelief or disbelief with an air of humility around it. 
who, who can really know, right? How can we know what's true? What is truth at all? Or, you know, I, I just don't have enough faith to believe like some people have faith to believe. That's just never been a gift of mine. And when, when we or other people say things like that, it can sound intelligent. It can sound open-minded. It can come across as self-deprecating and humble. But what I want you to see this morning is that under the surface, that is actually a brazen declaration of rebellion. That is actually accusing God of perjury, of lying. It's saying, of the two of us, I'm the truth teller, God's the liar. And if that's where you happen to find yourself this morning, I just want to invite you to stop hiding behind a self-deprecating, false humility facade. I want to invite you to stop pretending that there's humility involved in that. Jesus Christ came by the water and the blood. The Holy Spirit and the baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, not even to mention the resurrection of Jesus, which we could talk a long time about that. All of these things agree. And you, no doubt, have been willing to accept far less testimony to establish the truth of other things in your life, if you're honest. This is the testimony that God himself has borne about his son. We can either accept it or we can call God a liar. Those are our options. Like the men and the women and the children who offered their own testimonies this morning, my prayer for all of you is that you would accept this, that you would receive the testimony that God has borne. So that's the first testimony. Second, let's talk about the further testimony. Further testimony. As important as this objective historical testimony about Jesus is, it also must be something that we experience and personally appropriate. The the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is bearing witness to external evidence, the water and the blood, like John says. But the same Spirit is also our inward witness. It's the same Spirit that offers us confidence and assurance that what we have believed is true and that it actually counts on our behalf. One author put it this way, said the external witness faithfully accepted becomes internal certitude. The external witness faithfully accepted becomes internal certitude. And this inward witness of the spirit is what we might call the further testimony. And John writes about it here at the beginning of verse 10. He says, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself in himself. Now, this is not a novel idea from John. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote about many decades earlier in places like Romans chapter 8. Paul writes there, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul writes in Galatians 4, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so, we need to be really clear about two things this morning. First, we are not saved by a subjective experience. We are saved by Jesus Christ. Amen? We are saved by Jesus and the actual objective historical work that he has done. If he did not come by the water and the blood, if he did not bodily rise from the dead, then no matter how much his words or his example might mean to any one of us, we are to be pitied most among all people if that didn't actually happen. But second, having been saved by Jesus... We very much need a personal and present witness of the Holy Spirit. We need ongoing assurance that Jesus' objective historical work actually counts for me and counts for me right now. 
The gospel is not just that Jesus saves people who trust in him. It's that Jesus saves me because I trust in him. It's not, it's that, it's not just that Jesus died to forgive sins and sinners. It's that Jesus died to forgive my sin. It's not just that Jesus is reconciling the world to himself. It's that he's reconciling me and has reconciled to me, has reconciled me to God. And it's not just that Jesus is making all things new. It's that by grace, he's making me new. Our broader culture is far too dependent upon subjective, personal experiences. But Christian, I want to say to you this morning, there is also a danger that your faith becomes simply this stale recounting of historical facts. The Holy Spirit, though, is living and active. The Spirit is inwardly testifying. It's because of the past finished work of Christ, the Spirit is doing powerful and present work. So I just want to invite you to consider this morning and this week, what is your present experience? What's your present experience? When's the last time that you experienced real awe or astonishment that the God who created the world cares for you? is mindful of you? When's the last time that the love of God moved you to tears, overwhelmed you, that God could love you as much as he loves you? When's the last time that you were moved or prompted to shout with joy over your salvation or someone else's salvation? When's the last time that you raised your hands from a place of deep dependence, whether that be in prayer or in singing or just at home by yourself, that you just raised your hands to God from a place of deep dependence and trust in Jesus. Or maybe a little bit different, but I think related. When's the last time you were able to look another person in the eye and say with a straight face that following Jesus is the most joyful, satisfying way that a person could spend their few short years on this earth? You see, God's testimony compels our testimony. Our stories, including our subjective experiences, they're meant to testify, they're meant to bear witness to his story, to the true story of the world, the most beautiful story that the world has known. For all the things that that I think we do well as a church, I love our church, and I love you, and I love the community life and all that we get to be part of here. I think we do a lot of things by the grace of God well. For all the things we do well, two of our bigger weaknesses— would be expression and evangelism. And if you know me, you know I had an alliteration for it. So there it is. Expression and evangelism, two E words. We're not great at expression. If there were such a spectrum of emotional expression, we would definitely be to the stoic side of that spectrum, right? It's it's really good we don't have motion-sensing lights in here. We would worship in the dark a lot of our weeks. Nor... Are we great, in my estimation, and I'm pointing this at myself, at personal evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus? Most of us really struggle, if we're honest, to personally or individually bear witness, give testimony about Jesus to our family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates. And if there's a common root to these weaknesses, and I think there is, it's what John is writing about here, a present experience of the Holy Spirit's inward witness a personal appropriation of the testimony. See, if you have that, you will not be able to keep it in. You'll have to find some way to express that. Now, I know we have different personalities and a range of that. It's not like we're all going to look the same exactly, but we're going to find some way to express that, and we're going to find someone else to tell it to. It's like what the Apostle Peter 
And John, the guy writing this letter said, when they were released from being beaten and the religious leader said, stop talking about Jesus. And they said, we can't help it. We can't help it. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. That's what happens when you have a present experience of the inward witness of the Spirit. Christian, if this present experience is missing for you right now, here's two things I want to say to you. First, take heart. Take heart. That happens to all of us in our lifetime of following Jesus. Sometimes it happens for long stretches of time. So thanks be to God, our salvation does not hang on subjective experience. Keep trusting, keep availing yourself of the ordinary means of God's grace. Keep gathering for worship. Keep reading the Bible. Keep praying. Keep participating in the Lord's Supper. But second, don't resign yourself to a testimony that is merely objective. What Jesus has has objectively accomplished is meant to make a subjective, a, a personal and powerful difference in your daily life, in your daily experience. And so if that's where you're at, like Paul in Ephesians 3, Pray for renewed spiritual strength. Pray that the Spirit would give you a feeling sense of the truth. Pray that for yourself and also pray that over one another. Even as Paul prays there for all of the saints that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Pray that for one another. And then let the testimony of the Spirit of the living God overflow from you and become your testimony, become the testimony of your life as well. So we talked about the first testimony and the further testimony. Last, let's talk about the final testimony. The purpose of this testimony, the the whole point of what John is writing here, is that we would receive the eternal life that God has given to us in his son. The final testimony, the last word on the subject, comes in verses 11 and 12, where John writes, this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Sometimes we need a reminder of how simple it really is. Life is complicated. Life is confusing. So much of our lives involve these lifelong processes of of growth and change and a couple steps forward and a step or two back. So much of life involves gray areas. So much of life, if we're honest, is us not really knowing what the heck we're doing and just trying to figure it out as we go. When you feel like you're floating in a sea of gray area, let texts like this anchor you on solid ground. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The the whole point of our existence is that we would experience eternal life, that we would have life forever with God, that we would enter into the joy of perfect fellowship and communion with the one who has made us for himself. We were created for that. Sin has broken and fractured that, but Jesus Christ has restored it. And so now, though we wait for its final consummation, this quality of eternal life, this quality of life with God and a restored relationship with him is offered to all who would believe the testimony, who would believe in Jesus. Let that ground your feet this morning. Not to negate the difficulty of what you might be walking through in your life right now. 
Not to ignore, not to sweep under the rug any questions, hard questions that you're wrestling with. And by no means to just allow us to bury our head in the sand from the people and the important work that we're called to to do and be among in the world. But if you have the son, you have life. Amen? You have life. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you've come to believe God's testimony about his son, then his life, this life, eternal life is yours. And the same is true for every other person in this room or in this world who has the son, who has the son. Some of us are buried so deep in Christian subculture. Some of us are so busy fighting different tribes within it that you've forgotten at the end of the day, this is the line in the sand. This is the line. Not, not your view of the end times, not, what, not your understanding of what roles women should play in, in the local church, not the most faithful way to educate your kids or whatever other Christian subculture hot topic you might be really wrestling with in your life right now, might be blowing up your Twitter feed this week. One of the tragic, and if I'm honest, exhausting things as a pastor about the past few years is that within the Christian subculture, everything now has become the litmus test for faithfulness. Everything is the litmus test for faithfulness. And it's not that these other things don't matter. They do. It's just, this matters most. This matters most. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That's the litmus test. That's the line in the sand. If you cannot clearly differentiate between that and whatever other passion or hobby horse you have, and if it's not evident from your life that what matters most to you is Jesus and the eternal destiny of fellow image bearers of God, then recalibrate your gauge and reprioritize how you spend your life. And I beg you, do it right now. Do it right now. Jesus warned not irreligious people. He warned religious people, those who were most convinced they were doing the work of God, that what they were doing was straining out gnats and swallowing camels. He warned them that they were tithing from their spice rack, but ignoring the weightier matters, the whole point of the law in the first place. In other words, it is scary easy how for religious people to fixate on the minutia and to miss the big point, to miss the big picture. And so if you need to, get off of Twitter, get out of the Christian subculture, come up for air, (laughs) come up for air, spend more time with people who don't know about the latest Christian subculture battle and who honestly don't care. Instead, spend more time, spend your energy, spend your life helping people understand and believe the testimony that God has borne concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 John is writing, friends, that you may know the testimony. He's writing so that you would know that Jesus came by the water and the blood. His baptism, his crucifixion, not to mention his resurrection, are objective, historical, observable events that were not done in a corner. And the same spirit which testifies to those things is also testifying subjectively, internally, among us who believe. Jesus Christ's work, if you trust in him, his work counts for you. And as the spirit works powerfully and presently, his testimony will overflow from you. It will become your testimony too. Men and women, God has given us eternal life in Jesus. And so this morning, if you have the son, 
You have life. In spite of whatever else you are experiencing, rejoice in that reality today. Rejoice in that today. If you don't, if at present you don't believe in Jesus, and therefore, as John says here, do not have life, let today be the day you accept God's testimony. Let today be the day that you enter into the eternal life that God has given us and given you in his son. Let today be the day that we get to shout with joy over your salvation. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by your power, you raised Jesus Christ from death to life. Through his victory over the grave, we are set free from the bonds of sin and the fear of death to share in the glorious freedom of your children, Father. In Jesus' rising, you promise eternal life to all who believe in him. And we're grateful this morning that the testimony that you bore concerning your son was recorded and passed on faithfully that we might believe in it, that we might enter into the eternal life you have given us in Jesus. And so now as we prepare to come to his table, we pray that we would know the risen Jesus in the breaking of this bread. And we pray it all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.